Welcome to Undruggable, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. Beginning with the introduction of aspirin at the start of the 20th century, there have been three major ways of innovation in drug discovery. While breakthrough discoveries have been made, 85% of disease targets are still considered undruggable, which represents an ongoing barrier to discovering medicines for complex diseases like cancer and autoimmune conditions. Ray Deshays, who has spent decades in academic research and is a senior vice president at Amgen, believes that the fourth wave of innovation is here, led by new types of multi-specific medicines that will radically alter our concept of how drugs can work and pave the way for new solutions. We are in an exciting time for drug discovery and development. Once thought to be an insurmountable task, scientists are successfully tackling the problem of undruggable disease targets. In this episode, I talk to Ryan Potts, executive director and head of our induced proximity platform at Amgen. We trace the history of modern drug design all the way up to today's fourth wave and discuss what makes a drug target undruggable. Welcome, Ryan. I really look forward to having this conversation. Thank you, Ray, for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here and join this conversation about such an exciting topic. Let's start with the concept of undruggability. Of the 20 to 25,000 different proteins that a cell makes, only about three to 4,000 of them are actually druggable, meaning that a small molecule drug can target them and produce an effect. Imagine, for example, that the protein target is a basketball and the small molecule drug is a ping pong ball. That ping pong ball has to shut down the activity of the basketball, which is a challenge given the huge size differential between the two. Many protein drug targets are enzymes with active sites that the drug has to fit into to block activity. Only approximately 15% or so of the proteins that are encoded in our genomes have a pocket that a small molecule can actually fit into. That creates a huge challenge because it limits the targets that we can pursue for treating disease. We also think about this concept of lock and key, where the target you're trying to modulate hopefully has a keyhole and you're looking for a small molecule that would fit into that very specific configuration that he has to adopt to unlock that lock. It's quite staggering how 17,000 to 21,000 of the proteins encoded within our genome do not have that type of structure that allows them to be approachable by our conventional medicines. They just can't find a place to bind. When the industry first started, the primary approach was to look at substances that had pharmacological effects, either on a cell, on a tissue, on an organism, and then use organic chemistry to identify the molecule. Usually it was coming from a natural source. Aspirin comes from a product in willow bark, for example, that people used to chew when they had tooth pain and use chemistry to identify the active species and then synthesize it in large quantities and put it into a pill. That approach dominated for the first seven decades of the industry. And then in the 1970s, things began to change. 
in an important way, fueled by the advances in biochemistry and molecular biology, where now it became clear that there were pathways inside of cells that carry out various biological processes, and we could identify the proteins in those pathways that were carrying out the process and understand how they were contributing to disease. Instead of using a pure pharmacological approach where a drug has a desired effect, but we don't know why, we would start with a target that we had good reason to believe would have an effect on disease. A classic example is HMG-CoA reductase. It's an enzyme that plays a key step in cholesterol biosynthesis. And it was realized that if you inhibit this enzyme, you would reduce cholesterol because you'd have less cholesterol production. And that's the basis for the statin drugs. That got modified a little bit in the 1980s, where instead of just making small molecule chemicals to inhibit a target like a statin inhibiting HMG-CoA reductase, we could start bringing biologics into play, particularly monoclonal antibodies. We are entering a new era where we're making fundamentally different kind of medicines that work by a principle called induced proximity. This is a really exciting area where we're thinking about multi-specific medicines, that is medicines that are composed of multiple parts. And we think that certain types of multi-specific medicines work through a principle known as induced proximity, in which they bring together two entities within the cell, or potentially even outside the cell, that work sort of like a molecular matchmaker, if you will. Instead of having to grapple with difficult targets on their own, these multi-specific or induced proximity medicines will mobilize powerful biological mechanisms or cellular effectors to do a lot of the heavy lifting. These biological mechanisms have a very specific purpose in the body, but they can be hijacked to alter disease-causing proteins or targets. Induced proximity medicines are generally comprising of two parts that are linked together, one part that binds to a target in a non-functional way, and the other part that binds to, for example, a cellular effector. And these molecules induce the proximity of that target to the effector in the cell such that the effector can now act on the target and achieve a desired outcome. The further is along in the development of what are called protax or proteolysis targeting chimera molecules, which leverage ubiquitin ligases that tag unwanted or damaged proteins for destruction. The really exciting movement here in terms of induced proximity as a potential fourth wave in drug discovery allows us to address these targets in a different way. And that is you no longer require the molecule to do all the work. You now just need the molecule to bind to that protein in some way. It doesn't have to have a functional effect itself, but instead can facilitate the recruitment of natural factors that cell is encoding to now do a lot of the work for you um, and now allows you to address these so-called undruggable targets through leveraging the natural mechanisms in the cell and really hijacking those to carry out the activity to get the desired effect on the disease target proteins. A basketball doesn't have a little pocket that you could fit something into, but in this case, it wouldn't really matter. All you need is a piece of tape that could stick anywhere along the basketball, and that would allow you to tether something 
that could block its activity. Uh, in the case of targeted protein degradation, you would cause the protein to be actually destroyed and removed from the cell. You're no longer reliant on them having a specific pocket. One thing we're using induced proximity for is to target proteins for degradation. Can you explain a little bit about how that works? Using induced proximity for targeted protein degradation, we're exploiting a natural process in the cell that has evolved to allow the cell to regulate the expression of levels of different proteins, whether that be for protein quality control or to change the dynamics of how a cell functions by removing proteins on demand. There's a set of enzymes that upon recognition of a target protein can mark those proteins for degradation and we call this mark ubiquitin. That mark then leads to recognition by a fairly large molecular machine known as the proteasome. When it does so, it pulls them into a death chamber then chews up the protein. You can imagine now how one would like to co-opt that and redirect it towards disease targets where you might want to say inhibit or get rid of a protein that might be disease causing. If you have a protein that is fundamentally required for the growth of cancer cells, you might want to remove that protein, but maybe conventional approaches, that sort of lock and key, as we mentioned, may not be an option because there's no keyhole. You can take advantage of this concept of induced proximity to now recruit a ubiquitin ligase to that target through the help of a small molecule or potentially even a biologic molecule. And in doing so, that oncogene would then be marked for degradation and ultimately lead to removal of that protein from the cell. So as drug developers, Ryan, we literally steal a page out of nature's book and try to mimic nature. And that's often proven to be a very effective approach. Are there examples of this mechanism that you're describing that occur in nature? There's a classical example from human papillomavirus, or HPV, where one of the proteins encoded within the genome of the virus is called E6. And this protein, once the virus infects the cell, is produced, then actually acts as like a big bridge molecule to then recruit other factors to a ubiquitin ligase that the ligase typically would not recognize. Um, in this case, the ubiquitin ligase is a protein called E6AP, and the target is a cellular protein that is sort of a key gatekeeper for cellular health called P53. And in doing so, the virus promotes degradation of P53 by expression of this E6 protein that functions sort of like a big piece of tape, like you mentioned, and, and thus allows the virus to replicate and invoke havoc. In this case, it actually causes cancer. There's efforts now in industry to try to mimic this prospectively, where starting from scratch, we're trying to engineer induced proximity to ubiquitin ligases to eliminate disease-causing proteins from the cell. Are there any examples, looking retrospectively, of drugs that work by this type of mechanism of induced proximity leading to an outcome, whether that's targeted protein degradation or something else? We have come to realize that some uh, very successful drugs actually work by induced proximity without us knowing it for a number of years. A good example is lenalidomide. 
is a very successful cancer drug. It mediates the degradation of key transcription factors by ubiquitin ligase known as cerebron. This went completely unrecognized for a number of years. I believe that the finding of how linalidomide acts was one of the major breakthroughs for the field that opened a lot of eyes. You had hinted at one point that there's other types of induced proximity, both inside and outside the cell. You want to touch on that a little bit more? Where else could we go with induced proximity besides ubiquitin ligases? It's really a, such a fun time to be in this field. The opportunities are endless. There's so many creative ways to harness this induced proximity approach to achieve the desired outcomes that you would have never dreamed five or 10 years ago. Let's start with the outside of the cells. That's a recent area where we've seen a lot of innovation. A first example I'd like to point out is multi-specifics that instead of acting to bring together two proteins can actually act together to bring two cells together. You can think about bringing together, say, a cancer cell and a cytotoxic T cell ultimately leading to the killing of that cancer cell. The second I would highlight is recent innovations that have shown the potential to use induced proximity mechanisms to promote the uptake of other proteins that might be floating around in the blood, for example. And this could be very helpful when we think about toxic aggregates that are often disease-causing where you might want to remove those from the blood. And so capturing those by molecules that bind to those aggregate on one end and bind to a cellular receptor on the other end and engulf those into the cell and degrade them. Then I will point out a couple of other induced proximity approaches or modalities that are happening more internally to the cell. One is molecules we refer to as autacs which are uh, molecules that use autophagy to eat cellular debris, like aggregates of proteins or large cellular structures that might be leading to disease. Another good example is a type of molecules that we refer to as dubtacs. These act very much in the opposite fashion as targeted protein degradation. Instead, they prevent the degradation of that target protein and thus lead to the accumulation of that target. And the final one I'll mention here, that work by induced proximity is molecules like Ribotex use RNAs to slice up unwanted RNA that codes for disease-causing proteins. Induced proximity doesn't necessarily have to rely on this target-effector relationship. Instead, you can imagine glue molecules that build on existing but weak interactions between complementary surfaces. Imagine that there's some disease-causing mutation that impairs the ability of a protein to bind to its normal partner. One could imagine using a small molecule glue to stick them back together, much like using glue to stick back a handle that you break off your coffee mug. There's just a, so many opportunities here when we talk about induced proximity. I really like that example you're bringing up at the end, Ryan, about stabilizing interactions that normally exist in a cell. Up to now, we've been talking about inducing interactions that do not naturally occur. So we're creating, in effect, new biology to get a desired effect on our target. But you could also think about accentuating 
existing biology or enhancing existing biology. One thing I learned as a biochemist that a lot of interactions in biology are very transient. We could see that, for example, with these ubiquitin ligase enzymes, they have to attach this ubiquitin tag, and the enzyme that does the tagging usually repeats. It does three or four cycles of attaching the tag to just amplify the signal. For the enzyme to do that, it has to latch onto the target, put the tag on, and then come off so a new enzyme can come on and put the second target and so forth. So these interactions are very transient. They're very brief. They literally last for fractions of a second. One way to gum up the works is to slow them down, to come in with a little dab of glue and turn what's normally a very dynamic interaction into something that's essentially becomes frozen. I'm most intrigued about ribotax because that would effectively create a whole new axis into this problem of undruggability because you'd no longer be drugging proteins. If you think about the dogma behind molecular biology of, of going from DNA to, to RNA to protein, and if you now no longer can target at the protein level, well, then let's step back one level here and think about, could we target at the RNA level? It's a very evolving field and quickly being realized that, you know, RNA is not just a string of nucleotides that are in this planar fashion, but instead it adopts unique structures that are not that different than protein structures in some way. There's an opportunity here again to use induced proximity to find small molecules that can recognize specific RNA structures that allow us to now slice up those RNA and degrade them. Is there any real technological barrier to doing this? Would one use the same methods to make induced proximity drug that we've used to make existing drugs like statins? Or are there different approaches? Are there technologies that would really help drive this type of approach? It's a combination. One of the unique aspects that we've been touching on here is that for induced proximity drugs, the molecule itself doesn't have to be the mechanism of regulating that protein directly. When you're screening for molecules that might bind to your disease target, whether that be protein or RNA. You can take other novel approaches and use different technologies that you might have before because you had to look for a functional binder. Now you just have to find a binder that is specific. One of those approaches that is well-suited for this type of goal is DNA encoded libraries, where you can have mixtures of billions, if not trillions of molecules they're all tagged with a specific sequence that you can dip your protein down into and see what you fish back up by sequencing that DNA tag. This is a way to look for binders that are not necessarily functional in and of themselves, which is ideally suited for these type of induced proximity approaches. Do you see this as being focused towards a particular therapeutic area or do you see this being more generally applicable? There's no reason to believe that this approach is somehow specific to 
disease targets in one particular area. This is really a, a novel mechanism of action that should be fairly agnostic to the disease area. As long as the target biology is in an area where you know how to manipulate it to get the desired outcome, whether that be degradation or something else, you can imagine how many diseases are driven by very specific mutations. If you could correct that by sticking things back together by induced proximity, then that has a lot of opportunities beyond just, say, oncology. So I think it's very broad, to be honest. One thing about being in our business is that it encourages patients because the average time to develop a drug from start to getting it on the marketplace is roughly 12 years. On the other hand, we're always striving to go as fast as we can possibly go because we know that there are patients not being served by the current medicines and they're waiting. I understand we're we're trying to come up with a whole new approach here, which is extremely challenging. It's not going to happen overnight. When do you think the first prospectively developed induced proximity drug will receive approval and appear in the market? Well, this is an exciting time for patients, that's for sure. If I had to look in the crystal ball, we're already seeing hints that this is not too far away. And the hints come from what's coming into the clinical trials right now. There's really a wave of the first induced proximity medicines that are designed in a prospective way, particularly in a targeted protein degradation modality using Protac, that are now entering the clinic. I'm very excited that in the next few years, we're going to see some of these move to that stage. I certainly believe it's going to be transformative. I, th I think you could say this technology is disruptive to the industry, and I think it really is going to fuel that fourth wave, as you mentioned. There remains a very big challenge for others, including many inflammatory diseases and various cancers. The prognosis and treatments haven't changed for many diseases over a number of years. And that's surprising, given that the last decade has just seen tremendous advances in our understanding of the disease biology and the genetic drivers of these diseases. What's really languished is our ability to act on these genetic drivers, as many of them truly are undruggables. You don't have to look very far to see the tremendous development in this area. The potential and the value that it's going to bring to patients is extremely tremendous and exciting to be a part of. You said it really well there that what really drives us in this business is the idea of creating breakthrough therapies that will address unmet needs and deliver value to patients. Thank you, Ryan, and good luck to you in your efforts. Thank you, Ray. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Undruggable. Thanks again to Ryan Potts, Executive Director and Head of the Induced Proximity Platform at Amgen. To dive further into this topic, please join Amgen scientists at the Undruggable Q&A webinar discussion on November 3rd, 2021. Register for the event at the link provided in the episode notes. Protax are spearheading the fourth wave of drug discovery by targeting undruggable proteins. In the next episode of Undruggable, we'll talk with Craig Cruz, professor at Yale University, about his initial work with Ray Deshays that led to the development of Protax and where this technology is going next. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to The Scientist's Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. 
This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements, other than statements of historical fact, are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements, including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.